If you'll go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2 this morning. As Mike mentioned last week, uh, we've just been doing some standalone sermons uh, over the course of the last couple weeks uh, in preparation for an upcoming uh, sermon series and because of various things that are just going on. We had together for the gospel, various things like that. Uh, And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in John 2, again, not a part of a, a regular sermon series, but I do want to introduce a little bit of a sermon series coming up. Uh, so I know on the sermon card, the event card that we handed out earlier this year, uh, had a plan for us to go through uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, then go into Easter, and then into 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. But for some reason, I was wrestling with that and taking us through that during this time. Uh, and uh, we had a study with the men uh, in our uh, men's table talk. Uh, one of the chapters was on discipleship. Uh, and so as we were talking about that, I felt like God was just leading us in a different direction as it relates to sermon series. Uh, So we're going to go back a little bit to some basics, and we're going to define what it means to be a disciple, uh, what it means to follow, learn, repent, worship, love, serve, build, and multiply. Uh, And so we're going to take about eight to nine weeks looking at those various nouns that describe what a disciple is and searching throughout all of Scripture. will be in the Gospels, of course, uh, quite a bit, uh, but then in also some of the uh, epistles back in the Psalms uh, for some of these, uh, just seeking to remind ourselves what it means to follow Jesus, how we are a disciple. Uh, if we truly are a disciple, uh, then what this, uh, what this means for us uh, as uh, Christ's followers. And so uh, that will be coming up. Uh, we'll either start that next week or the following week. Uh, again, we're, we're working on some details uh, there in the timing. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 2 and be looking at a manifested glory uh, in verses 1 through 11. But before we jump into the Word, i got to start off this morning by asking you to be a little honest, maybe even a little vulnerable with me as I ask you a question. Okay, How many, or is there any of you, that have ever crashed a wedding? Like legitimately crashed? Really? Wow, I wasn't expecting that. All right, you crashed crashed a wedding? All right, I wasn't expecting you two uh, to to have said that. If Ryan was here this morning, I was kind of expecting Ryan to have been uh, able to say that. Uh, Maybe Earl, but you haven't crashed a wedding? No? Earl and Ryan seem to be those guys that are just quiet enough that could sneak in but yet quick enough on their feet that they can carry on conversations with the great aunts and great uncles and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, to be completely honest with you, have never crashed a wedding, but it has a certain appeal to me for some reason. Uh, as I've said before, like, weddings aren't always like, the thing I want to go to on a weekend, uh, except for the food <laughs> and the drinks. Uh, that sounds good uh, for me, free food. Free drinks, that would be great. Uh, But for some reason, it has this appeal to me to go and at least uh, put myself out there and to crash a wedding. Um, At least the uh, thrill and excitement of doing that seems to be worthwhile, or at least that's what I I try to tell myself. I don't think I'll ever get up enough nerve to actually go and do that, but I'll talk to you two ladies to figure out how uh, we might do that uh, and put it on on our bucket list or something like that. Well, here in chapter 2, of John, we find Jesus, his disciples, his mother Mary at a wedding. And though John tells us that Jesus was actually invited to this wedding, what we find out by the end of the narrative is that he, you could say, totally crashes this wedding with an amazing display of power 
and authority. And so we read in verses 1 through 11 these words of, uh, from uh, the, the apostle or the follower of Jesus, John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan at Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this is... God's word for us this morning where he meets us and make, makes himself known to us. So let's take a moment before we study this word from God and express our gratitude, our thankfulness for his word and that he speaks through his word. Father, we are grateful that you choose to use words, words that have been recorded from uh, many thousands of years ago uh, to still speak to us, your people today. And so when we open your word, whether it's here this morning or whether it's throughout the week and our daily quiet time with you, we know that you have a message for us to learn. You have a message for us to follow. You are sharing truths to change us. And so, God, we ask this morning as we open your word that you would do that. You would change us, uh, that you would help us to see more of your son, Jesus, who he is what he calls us to do, how he calls us to respond to him. And God, that you would stir within us a greater affection, greater love. You would grow our faith in you for your glory and our joy in you, in your name. Amen. Well, if you've studied the Gospel of John and you've read the first chapter of John, John introduces there in chapter 1 and, and starts to answer one of the most important questions in all of history. He's answering the question, who is Jesus? In verse 1, he describes Jesus as the word. In verse 4, he is called the light. Moving down to verse 29, John declares to all of his disciples, behold the Lamb of God. And then shortly after, his, his disciples, that's John's disciples, refer to Jesus as rabbi and as, Matt, as the Messiah. All of these descriptions collide, though, when, when the fact that Jesus is from Nazareth is introduced. And that leads Nathaniel to ask in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But then it's not much later when Nathaniel, in his astonishment over Jesus knowing who he is, he declares Jesus to be the son of God, the king of Israel. Chapter 1 shows us all of these truths about who is Jesus, but then ends with a question and a statement from Jesus that seems to just hang in the air, waiting to be answered and waiting to be seen. It says uh, there at the end of 
of chapter 1 and verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Again, Jesus talking to Nathaniel. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And so as chapter 2 begins, we find ourselves waiting for these greater things. What's about to take place? What greater things can be seen than Jesus knowing who a man is that's sitting underneath a fig tree? We've been left wondering if Jesus is who John and the other disciples have identified him to be. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the, and truly the Son of God? Is he the King of Israel? But there's also another question that ought to ring in our ears and in our hearts here that John has intentionally recorded for us from the lips of Jesus there in verse 50. Do you believe? You see, it's one thing to identify Jesus as divine, but the real question is, do you believe him to be so? Oh, you can say that he is the Messiah. You can say that he is truly the Son of God, the King of Israel, but do you believe him to be so? In fact, there are many in our world today who can accurately describe who Jesus is, but they do not truly believe him to be so. Take, for example, Bart Ehrman. He is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina. He strongly argues for the historicity of Jesus. But he also asserts that Jesus never thought of himself as God, nor did he ever claim to be God, but was merely a simple itinerant preacher from Galilee. Or Reza Aslan, an internationally best-selling author who argues in his latest work, Zealot, that while Jesus was born in Nazareth, grew up a poor laborer, he was just simply a disciple of John the Baptist. He was trained to preach the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God, but never intended to found a church, much less a new religion. You see, it's people like these modern-day apostates and wolves in sheep's clothing that pontificate a false idea that you can believe Jesus existed, yet you can completely dismiss who he truly is. What we find here in the Gospel of John is that John is seeking to impress upon his readers, impress upon us, a straightforward reality that what you believe about Jesus is important. What you believe about who he is is important. And so in our passage this morning, John begins to argue from the accounts of Christ's signs or miracles. And as he does so, he does this for the purpose of the entire book, which we read of in chapter 20, verse 31, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that we might believe he is the Son of God, and by believing we may have life in his name. And so through this specific sign here, in chapter 2 of the turning of water into wine, John holds out a wonderful truth for us this morning, that the glory of Christ ignites belief. The glory of Christ ignites belief in the hearts of those who truly behold him. We begin our study this morning in, in John chapter 2 by looking at a glory that Christ manifests. John informs us that the setting for this first miracle from Jesus is a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now we don't know why Jesus is actually attending this wedding. Though it would seem to be that there, there is a relative or a close friend who is getting married since 
Jesus' mother, Mary, is there. The fact that his disciples are with them should not at all be surprising to us, for in those days, these large events were including most people within the cities. And so the fact that disciples were with Jesus would have just been natural. In fact, the wedding feasts were such a significant event that it would often last as long as a week. And all of you ladies say, whoa, I couldn't imagine preparing for, <laughs> for a week uh, wedding feast and all of those kind of things that are happening. We might think that it would be a normal occurrence then, if these things are happening, these feasts are happening for a week, that the food and wine would run out at some point during the lengthy celebration. But John is highlighting this point right here at the beginning of chapter 2 for a purpose. Not only because there's something amazing that's going to take place, but because of a certain tension that would have been felt for most of the host, for the host of this wedding feast due to the shortage of wine. You see, running out of food or wine would have been a big deal because it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide fitting hospitality to all of the guests. So running out of wine would have been an, actually an insult to all the people who have been gathered for this feast. And it actually would have called into question the ability to provide for family. To fail in hospitality was a dark blot on a family's reputation. One commentator notes, it was even possible to take legal action in certain circumstances against someone who had failed to provide. When the supply of wine failed, more than social embarrassment was involved. The bridegroom and his family were actually open to being fined heavily for this. Can you imagine that, running out of something uh, at the wedding and being able to be fined for that? But recognizing this cultural context helps us understand the anxiousness that must have been felt in the wedding at that point, specifically by Mary. She is anxious and wants Jesus to help. This is a big problem. Something had to be done right away, but just running down to the grocery store to grab more wasn't an option. And so Mary appeals to Jesus, and it must carry a, a deeper significance than just saying, hey, we need to have more wine, go run down to the store. What's happening here? Well, we begin to observe the essence of her request unfold as Jesus responds to her in verse 4. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. At first glance, this reply may seem to be somewhat disrespectful. But in that culture, the title woman was not mean or rude, but a word of intense tenderness. In fact, you might recall that Christ uses this title again as he addresses Mary from the cross, seeking to care for her after his death. So there's a certain affection within this title. And it's this affection that helps us See the tone that Jesus has in the question that follows. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Again, if we just read this question at face value, it might seem to be discourteous and even harsh from Jesus. Is he just blowing off his mom and saying like, ah, don't worry about it. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me that there's no wine. But that's not at all the tone our Savior has with Mary. Rather, as John Calvin helps, helps us and he explains, it is if he said, that is Jesus said, Mother mine, I know what you want, but you do not understand. 
There are limitations to your understanding of me. Mother of my flesh, dear to my heart, you have been watching over me all my years, and now I seem to be moving out into public work, and so you are anxious that I shall do something that will reveal the meaning of my personality and mission. In other words, John Galvin is saying that Jesus is carefully and tenderly reminding his mother that he had come for a greater purpose. He had come for something greater than just providing wine that ran out at a wedding. You see, even though Jesus hasn't performed miracles prior to this, Mary still knows that there's something special about her son. No, this isn't just over-exaggerated optimism of a mother for her son. Mary knows that her son is like no one else. She has been told prior to his birth by the angel Gabriel that he'll be great and he will be given the throne of David. You might remember as we studied during Advent, Luke records for us in chapter 1 what's commonly known as her Magnificent, that Mary understands and yet wonders at who her son is and what amazing things he will one day do. And so Mary is wrestling with this. She knows that Jesus can take care of this problem and he can do something about it. And so her request gives evidence that she knows that creating some wine won't be a problem for him. But still, Christ reminds her that that's not his main purpose, that his hour had not yet come. In fact, this phrase actually shows up several more times throughout John's gospel. As John is highlighting throughout this, this gospel the mission of Jesus. If we were to turn to chapter 4 and chapter 5, Jesus speaks of an hour that is coming but is not yet here. Chapter 7 and verse 30, John records for us that, through, that though the authorities were seeking to arrest Jesus, that they did not lay a hand on him because, quote, his hour had not yet come. Again in chapter 8, John tells us that Jesus was not arrested because his hour had not yet come. You see, there's a certain significance in this phrase, the hour has not yet come. And it's uncovered throughout John's gospel as he creates this certain level of suspense for his readers. We again are left wondering, as we read this phrase over and over and over again, when will this hour come? What is this hour? When will it come? Well, it's not until chapter 12 that we see a modification to this phrase. In fact, turn there with me, if you would. Chapter 12 and verse 23. Here Jesus has been told by two of his disciples, Andrew and Philip, that there were some Greeks who had come to see him. To which Jesus replies, read uh, chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Again, we hear of this hour. Well, what is this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
then John records, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that they they had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answers, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, John notes, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so you see this hour that has not yet come back in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 8, has now come. His hour, his time, his mission was here. His death was near, John tells us. And it was for this purpose, the glory of the Father, that Jesus would endure the dark hour of death. For the glory of the Father and the redemption of mankind by his death. And so the suspense that's been building in John's gospel comes to a climax here as the hour has come. And the truth is, friend, it, is, it was this dark hour that Jesus endured for you and for me. John continues in his account of Jesus' words and life from chapter 12 through chapter 19, where he records of the horrific cries of the crowd to crucify this innocent and sinless man from Nazareth. The word that has become flesh. Soon after, those cries are satisfied as Jesus is delivered up by Pilate to be crucified on the cross, not for a crime that he had done, but for you and for me. You see, this hour that Jesus speaks of in chapter 2, that has not yet come, comes. And that dark hour on the cross was for you and for me. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, I want you to hear this morning that this dark hour that Jesus is talking about, was for you. The cross was for you. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a man. He took upon himself flesh and bone so that he might become a sacrifice for your sin. The bad news is that we are separated from God in our sin, but the good news is that Jesus came, took that flesh so that we might become reconciled and redeemed by his blood shed on that cross in that dark hour. So we can be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. So if you haven't placed your faith in that work, in that dark hour work on the cross, do so this morning. The hour that we read of in verse 4 is the reason Jesus came to earth. He came for a greater and grander purpose than even his mother Mary could have realized at the time. And so Mary's request reveals how confident that she is that Jesus could actually do something about this situation. Yet Jesus' words remind her that there's something greater that's about to happen. And so he says, my hour has not yet come. But despite what seems like a mild rebuke from Jesus, Mary still demonstrates faith in him further by instructing the servants of the wedding feast to do whatever he tells you. Again, the way John writes it is is interesting. He moves from a very important phrase and jumps to to Mother Mary, who says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And they do. 
John moves rather abruptly from this fascinating discussion between Mary and Jesus to the details in verse 6 of six stone water jars that are used for the Jewish rites of purification. They could hold up to 30 gallons of water. Then in verse 7, he tells us the simple directions that Jesus gives the servants. to Just go and fill the jars with water and then take some to the master of the feast. You see, John's going somewhere here as he's moving abruptly. He's taking us to the climax of this story. And so when the servants go and they do what Jesus has told them what to do, they all of a sudden realize that something amazing has happened. The water that they poured into those jars is no longer water. It's now wine. And so as the master of the feast takes a drink, you can almost picture not only his surprised expression, which John records for us in verse 10, but also the servant's jaws dropping in disbelief. I mean, wait a second. We just put water in those jars, and it's now wine. What just happened? In fact, the middle of verse 9, John gives us the side note. He says, though the servants who have drawn the water knew. You see, the servants knew exactly where the water had come from. They knew it was water. They knew that Jesus had instructed them to put water into those jars, but what they didn't know was who this Jesus was. For this man named Jesus was the word that was in the beginning, the word that was God and was with God, the one by whom all things were made, and without him not anything, not even water, not even wine was made. He's the sustainer of all things, and in him all things hold together. The one who had told these servants to fill the jars with water was the one who had all authority and power over everything that has been created. This is Jesus, totally God and totally man. The word that became flesh, John tells us, and dwelt among even these servants. So you see, in these verses before us this morning, we have this beautiful collision of God's omnipotence and his imminence. He has all power, yet he cares and is concerned for the small things of life, like even making sure there's enough wine at this wedding feast. So as we're reading this, John wants us to understand this is Jesus. This is who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is. Interestingly enough, John doesn't tell us any more about the servants' reactions to this man from Nazareth. Instead, he lets us in on a side conversation that's happening between the master of the feast and the bridegroom. Look at verse 10. He writes, And said to him, again, that's the master of the feast calling the bridegroom, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast, and likely everyone else at the wedding that day, are completely shocked at how good this wine is. They are shocked because it would have been quite unusual for the best wine to be served later. Especially after a couple days of drinking freely, John tells us, at this joyous celebration. By that time, the guests 
taste buds would have been somewhat dulled. And to be frank, they would have been intoxicated just enough to not even care about how the wine tasted. And so the poorer wine normally would have been served later on during the wedding feast. You just wouldn't save the best for last. You would give it first. But here, Jesus provides the best. That's amazing. That's incredible. The other day in our Good News Club at Burt Elementary, one of the questions was, what was the first uh, miracle from Jesus? And Karis answered the question, saying it was turning water into wine. Uh, And then she emphasized in her answering of the question, it was good wine, adding really good wine. Well, actually, I don't know what wine tastes like, but I hope it's good, she said. I think there's a parenting win in there somewhere. See, this was really good wine that Jesus creates out of plain old water. That doesn't just happen, does it? You can't even just leave water lying around long enough to make wine. Now, some try to argue that these jars had just enough wine already in them that when they were filled with water, it became wine. But John makes the point that these were water jars. (laughs) These weren't wine jars. And the last time I checked, when adding water to any kind of drink, wine or whatever it might be, doesn't make it all that much good. It doesn't make it better. Uh, It makes it worse. What we have here is something amazing that Jesus does. Something incredible. Something no one has been able to do before. But Jesus can. And he does. Jesus can do the impossible. And he does the impossible. And in doing this, John explains to us in verse 11 that Jesus manifested his glory. Read verse 11. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he did what? He manifested his glory. Through this sign, Jesus reveals, he uncovers his glory. And John, throughout this gospel account, chooses to use this word sign instead of miracle like the other gospel writers. And he does so for a purpose. John is seeking to explain something about who Jesus is. He's seeking to answer that question, who is this Jesus? But he's also seeking to provoke a response to who this Jesus is. And so this use of the word sign is to point to something. These signs are like parables acted out in front of us, revealing who Jesus is and who, what God is like. To this point, D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' miracles are never, never simply naked displays of power or neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could only be perceived with the eyes of faith. So it's this sign here, this display of power and authority over creation that John informs us points to something else. It points to his glory. Jesus makes his glory visible by this act of turning water into wine. If you're familiar with the story of God, you might recall how Moses pleads with God to show him his glory. Remember that at the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 33? But there God only allows him to see his back 
as he hides him in the crevice of the rock. God's glory is unable to be viewed by Moses, but in Christ, John tells us, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, we see the glory of God. We see the glory that the angels sing of around the throne, calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, this idea of glory that we find throughout the Old Testament and now here in John's Gospel carries with it the idea of a heaviness or weight. Not a physical weight, but rather the importance or the gravity of something. The influence it has over you. For example, your boss carries more weight than your coworkers, And so you probably respond to your boss differently than you do your coworkers. See, God's glory, his weight, requires a different response from us. One author defines glory as possessing consummate worth, beauty, virtue, and excellence. And this is precisely what Jesus manifests here in John 2. The point of his turning of water into wine is not primarily that he can meet needs, though he certainly does that and can. The point is that Jesus is unique. He is the revelation of God's glory. The author of Hebrews states it like this, He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Paul to the church in Corinth writes these words, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ embodies the glory of God. And once again, Calvin reminds us, this doesn't mean that there was a full and final or complete manifestation here, but that he manifests his glory, that is, he made his glory shine forth to those around him. And as his glory shines forth, there's only one right response. There's only ever one right response to God's glory, and that is to believe. So that's where John leads us here. We not only see Jesus' glory manifested, but we also see a belief ignited. Notice how John concludes with a simple yet profound statement at the end of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. They believed. He pans out from his focus on the servants and the wedding feast and then zooms back in onto the disciples of Jesus who in Chapter 1, remember, are following Jesus, but yet they're struggling to believe him and who he is. But now, after these 10 verses and the amazing display of turning water into wine, they have seen his glory, and the glory of Christ ignites belief in their hearts. In a way not realized before, they behold his glory and they believe. You see, the glory of God sparks faith in those who truly behold Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus that blind, blind Saul on the road to Damascus, and it transforms him to a, from a murderer to the missionary, Paul, who then would write, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
So this power of Jesus to transform water into wine is truly amazing, but what's even more amazing is the power to ignite belief in a rebellious sinner. That is truly amazing. And this is Jesus. Able to turn water into wine, but also, even more greater, able to turn sinners into saints. So as we see in this short narrative, we see the glory of Jesus on display. We are called by John to believe. Again, chapter 1 ends, Do you believe? And it's hanging in the air. Now the disciples believe. But do we? Do you believe? You see, I I think what John would want us to walk away with from this short narrative is not just more head knowledge about Jesus, more knowledge about his power and authority over creation, more knowledge just to raise our hands and say, yes, we know what the first miracle was, turning water into really, really good wine. No, John wants us to believe. He calls us to believe the one whose glory is on display here. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. Believe in him and have life, he says. Have life in his name. And so there's a simple question for us this morning. Do we believe? Where is our faith placed? Is our faith placed In this man from Nazareth, who could turn water into wine, who could transform sinners to saints, do we believe? Oh, may we be a people, a church, that are able to sing these words of the great hymn with strong confidence that our faith has found a resting place. It's not in device or creed. We trust the ever living one his wounds for me shall plead so the author writes my heart is leaning on the word the living word of god that took on flesh and bone for us salvation by my savior's name salvation through his blood i need no other argument i need no other plea it is enough that jesus died and that he died for me. Church, behold the glory of Jesus and believe. Father, this morning, I pray that just as your glory was manifested and revealed and it ignited belief in your disciples, that it would do the same thing this morning. That if there's someone here that has been struggling with believing in who you are, And if you are truly the Son of God, that even through your word this morning, you are sparking faith in their hearts. And that they would turn in faith and repentance to you. They would bow their knee to you, the King. Not just Israel, the King of all kings. King of everyone. And they would turn in faith and believe. And for those of us who have, by your grace, believed, and are still believing today, would you stir up a greater 
belief, a greater faith within our hearts. A faith and belief that you can do amazing things. That you still work. Your power hasn't diminished. Your authority hasn't been able to be overcome. And so you're still the same God, still the same Jesus Christ who rules and reigns today. And you you build your church, you grow us as disciples by faith, by our belief in you for your glory. And so God, I I ask that you would do that in our hearts and you would spark belief as we behold your glory.